as the past superintendent of Hillsborough County Public Schools and as a former New York State Education Commissioner, Mary Ellen Elia knows what she is talking about. Jeff recruited her to this leader chat to discuss strategies on setting up district systems aligned to the needs of students, something Mary Ellen is very passionate about. This conversation is relevant to education leaders regardless of the size, location, or demographics of their system. A relevant topic indeed. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. I'm Jeff Rose, and this is um, exciting because it's actually been a few weeks. We are now into our summer schedule, so to speak, mostly for about eight months a year. We are every single Wednesday is when we bring to our members a live video Leader Chat, as well as sending them the recorded version. And then two weeks later, that becomes a publicly available podcast. But in the summer, we very intentionally slow down, um, even though, let's be very clear, educational leaders specifically, they don't have the summer off. They don't. And regardless of where I was or what position I had, even my friends and relatives continue to make the assumption that I had my summer off. That is not the case. There's tons to do in the summer relative to preparing for the next year, looking at the infrastructure, the staffing. There's a variety of tasks that are actually fairly laborious that people are unaware of. So I know people are working, but in the meantime, we slow down to, of course, um, we, we do want some people to be able to take some time off. Um, we also were working during the summer but um, the fact is we don't have as many leader chats. And today we're bringing to you what is a really important topic, a topic that we know is aligned to the needs of leaders because we, we often deal in groups, our solution circles focused on how our leaders create infrastructure and look at their system, their people aligned to you know, what they want to be known for, their strategic plan, of course, their students and results and everything that they're accountable to. And it's often a very, fairly difficult and tricky task. And so what we have is maybe one of the most experienced educators in the nation with us today who has had this incredible career and still is. And so we're thrilled to be able to introduce Mary Ellen Ilya to our audience. Now, let me let me give a brief bio and then uh, and then we're gonna bring her on bring her on uh, on screen with me. So Mary Ellen is the former commissioner of education for New York State and former superintendent of the Hillsborough County, which is Tampa, Florida school district, the seventh largest school district in the United States. In these capacities, Ms. Ellie had oversight in excess of 2,600,000 students in one environment and 200,000 students in another, respectively. She began her career as a classroom teacher. She has extensive experience in academics, operations, and managing complex systems, which is what we're talking about today. Since 2020, Mary Ellen has been president of Success for Students, a consulting firm that provides services to state education departments, school districts, and schools. She is also an educational advisor for AASA, serving as the consultant to the AASA National Agenda for Learning 2025. And I missed tons of things intentionally because it would have gone on just for far too long. So let me welcome Mary Ellen to the screen, Marilyn. 
Thank you so much for being here with us today. It's great seeing you. How have you been? Very well, Jeff. Thank you for this opportunity. It's great to be able to talk to some people out there that are working so hard to make schools work. Did you get that throughout your career, regardless of position? People sometimes made an assumption of, oh, you must be like relaxing this summer, right? When Always. that's never the case. Always. I guess they felt like when their kids were out of school, then schools just didn't have to do anything. And then when kids came back in, in September, late August, whenever, um, it's just like you opened the doors and it was all set. Yeah. No, people, people really don't have um, a clear understanding of how it all works. As if there was some sort of magic button that uh, the superintendent could just push and schools opened. Because that's <laughs> definitely not the case. <laughs> yeah, give me that button, right? Yeah, I'm if sure only. It's listening today. Wish they had that button. Yeah, they would have paid big money for that button. So, Marilyn, tell us, um, I just did give a brief bio, but maybe just give us more background on, you know, what, what motivated you early on? Tell us more about your story as it relates to moving into educational leadership, because you've had such a, such a presence there, but there must have been a why behind that decision. Um, there must have been a path and you just found yourself there. What what was it that brought you to positions where you had so much influence over so many students? Well, I I think um, I think if you start with just the, my teaching career, you know, I taught for 17 years in upstate New York and, um, and I love teaching. I mean, honestly, I never planned that I was gonna become an administrator. Um, in fact, I thought to myself very consciously, I don't want to become an administrator. I really like teaching and I like being with students. And I think, you know, most people that have gone into administration, that's one of the things they, they most miss is the contact with kids and the interaction and all. Um, I, my husband and I made a move to Florida and, um, and that affected kind of the pathway of how it would all lay out for me in the future. Um, I came to Florida and I was uh, one of a very few people certified in um, reading as a, um, as a second certification. I'd been a social studies teacher in New York and I came to, to Florida and decided I would use my master's degree in reading and get a job in the reading area. And because there weren't very many people, I went into a position where I was really defining the position and became a reading resource specialist. And the focus was for me to work with teachers in a large high school and teach them in their coursework how to teach reading to students. And um, of course, this was in 1986, and um, and there was a, a huge focus um, after um, a nation at risk and all the things that we needed to do to get ourselves ready for the future. And one of them was clearly having all students be successful, at least to be able to leave high school and move into a career, move into uh, post-secondary work. And so I ended up doing that. And when that happened, um, just things kind of fell together. There weren't a lot of people in reading. I got a, um, I was told, you know, you need to apply for the reading supervisor's job in the district. And of course, um, we were much smaller in Hillsborough at the time. And so I did that. I got the job. And then I started working in multiple areas that I think that was really the the um, crux of the background that really helped me see the importance of everybody working together. 
right? I was in, in the instructional area as a reading supervisor. Then the district was under a deseg plan, so we had to open up magnet schools to be able to desegregate our schools. I was in charge of magnet schools. I kept reading. Um, then I became in charge of ESL, summer school, youth services programs, all these different things that were very, um, I would say different, but on the other hand, very connected. And so um, I, I had to deal with people in all of the divisions, whether it was um, uh, the facilities division who did busing or whether it was um, the personnel division who did certifications or whoever um, had an issue, I was around in their area. And so consequently, it became real obvious to me that you got more success in a school district that was growing, um, that really had a number of challenges, a very diverse population, if everybody could work together. And, uh, you know, there's kind of a cliche now, break down the silos. Um, I truly believe that is the approach that has to be taken in school districts. You know, we have people that don't really know what other divisions are doing, but yet they affect them. So those are some of the things I think, Jeff, that really brought me to uh, administration and gave me opportunities to see how you can really do this better by working together. Now, when you, you said uh, Hillsborough at one point in time was when you were there, starting there was much smaller. What, what was the size? Because I know it's, it's, it's a very large district now. What was it at the time? Do you remember? Um, yeah, it was about um, 180. I mean, that was the smaller side, sure. right? Sure. And then, and, and then it grew. Um, when I was superintendent, right before I became superintendent, we opened four schools in like a year and a half. Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, there was, there was so much development going on um, that it was um, just phenomenal about how you could get that many schools built quickly and safely and in the right place. You know, if, if, if we ask the, the, the average parent or the parent to close their eyes and, and think, of, think of school or education, um, what we hear is that they they kind of envision a classroom. They think of desks, right? Uh, they think of the school. Uh, they sometimes, sometimes think of buses. And uh, that's kind of about it. And then it drops off and there's what people um, are unaware of is the incredible and complex infrastructure that happens in a school district, right? We, transportation, but there is, there's real estate, there's development, there's food service, there's, I mean, it goes on and on relative to being able to stand up and manage and move a system forward. It is not just about teaching and learning. That is the crux, mm -hmm. but there's so many other plates that are spinning, as you know. So as you talked about the concept of silos, the concept today that we're, I wanna pick your brain about is how, how a leader organizes the the school district that keeps those plates spinning, but from from the same kind of sheet of music. So what is your philosophy as it it relates to getting people on the same page, organizing the system specific to student success? How do, how, do, how do you you know kind of what's your overarching thought on on why that's important and how to do it? Well, I, th I think that um... 
you know, you can, you're going to have successes in pockets in a school district, but to really move the district for all students, uh, which is really, that has to be the focus of American education. We have to think all students. Um, we can't have kids siloed in themselves siloed in um, what category of student they are. Are they an AP student? Are they an ELL student? Are they a student who has special needs? I mean, we have to figure out how we can move the agenda for all students to be successful. And um, it's just too difficult to keep separate groups of kids, separate programs that don't really build and support all students. So the philosophy that I always had was we all own every student. So mm -hmm. if you're sitting around the superintendent's um, leadership table and you're having meetings um, once or twice or three times a week, there has to be discussion there about how each division is moving the needle forward for those areas that have been problematic in schools. And I think I mentioned this to you before. The best example that I can think of is um, a principal that came into a group of, of my leadership team. This principal was having, she was in a very difficult school, needed a lot of support. We all recognized that. Um, but we were trying to figure out what that looked like, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't just look like having people walk in your school and be there because that isn't really going to move the needle for kids in a classroom with a teacher. Um, that sometimes puts even more stress on people. But we were all sitting there and the principal came in and I said, okay, tell me what your biggest issue was today. Yeah. It's the biggest thing that happened. And she said, the toilet in my kindergarten classroom broke I haven't had it for three days and the kids are, are not getting the instruction they need in that classroom. And it's one of my most at risk groups. Mm -hmm. I thought, do we all understand this? If a kindergarten classroom doesn't have access to a toilet right in their classroom and, and it's very purposeful that it's designed that way because it takes away um, the movement time and the distractions and all. And so it becomes part of just like living in my room, my classroom. And if we, you don't have that, and every time a child goes into the bathroom, you've got to have a teacher walk in after and pour water into the toilet. You've got a problem. Yeah, fix you the toilet. Focusing <laughs> on instruction. And so that, that really brought it home to all of us. And we talked about that and you know, the same thing when you have um, beyond maintenance, you have an issue with buses. If a school is consistently having their buses come 20 to 30 minutes late for whatever reason, mm -hmm. you got to fix that. And that is in a department that generally doesn't interact with the principal at a school. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, you reminded me of a, uh, a scenario when I was in Beaverton School District in Oregon, I once um, had our principals go through an activity where I had them close their eyes and imagine what their school looked like, felt like, sounded like, smelled like. And I just got them in the place where they're thinking about their school. I asked them to open their eyes and I said, here's the thing, it's not your school. It's ours. The, mm -hmm. We are a school district, not a district of schools. 
And we need to treat our schools like we do our classrooms where you don't say, just close the door and be a good teacher, right? You want people to work in teams and co-own every student, right? There, there's a process for that. And, you know, it's, it's easy to get blinders on and focus on what's in front of you, but yeah, we have to understand that we are working, hopefully as cohesively as possible relative to the needs of the student, even if that means fixing a toilet, right? So, but the thing is, as you know, Jeff, sometimes people have been, um, they've been put in that block or that silo and they are really good doing what that job is. Yeah. But when they think about what, how am I going to connect with the rest of the district to make it all better? That is a process of people examining what they're doing, what their practices are and what they need to improve. And I think that is um, what many superintendents get faced with, right? I, I'm going in as a superintendent. I've got a staff here. They all have a title. Mm -hmm. Somebody's somebody is human resources. Somebody is facilities. Somebody is maintenance. They all have these titles. And the issue really becomes the titles have to go away and they've got to join the agenda to support all students towards success. And, and that kind of thing and that kind of approach, I think, is really critical, particularly for superintendents going in uh, to larger districts, medium-sized districts. But to be very honest, um, it happens in small districts as well. I had experience with that in New York State. We have a lot of small districts in New York State. And those districts that have moved the agenda to how do we all help every student succeed, they're the most successful. I had a mentor years and years ago um, when I was struggling and probably trying to do um, too much too fast. He told me, he said, you know, Jeff, your job as a leader is to do more work on the system, not in it. And you have to focus on creating a system as opposed to just doing, you have to lead it. Now, when you and I were talking about this, you said, yeah, but it's both, right? It's mm -hmm. both. What are your thoughts on the on versus in and how you make wise decisions as a leader to know where to be? Well, I think clearly it's um, you have to you have to work on the system, right? That's what we've been talking about. You have to have people see their their work as um, connected to the entire world of schools and students and success and instruction for success, and all of that is really critical. But you also have to have yourself embedded in that system too. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there are times when you really need to make changes that have been pretty deep-seated and established in a district. And to get those changes to occur, you sometimes have to embed yourself in to make sure that the changes is, are, are occurring. Um, for instance, um, in Hillsborough, we, um, we really wanted to move the agenda towards many more students, including our uh, at-risk minority students, to have um, uh, opportunities to have access to higher-level coursework. Okay. So we did a couple of things um, and analyzed exactly how a kid goes from like eighth, not eighth grade into ninth grade 
And then what would put him in the pathway to be able to take, say, an AP Lit class when he was in 10th or 11th grade? And when you really analyze that, that is based in many districts, and it clearly was in Hillsborough, it's based basically on um, teacher and or guidance counselor recommendations. Well, I, I wasn't seeing that the teachers and the guidance counselors were thinking that, um, that kids should be challenged, even if it's not like their natural way to function, they can, they can raise that, their abilities by being challenged in some of those higher level course, courses. And, um, and the, the strategy was with, with the staff members, I think, um, I talked to a lot of them and I knew a lot of them. Um, basically, if you're going to be in an AP class, you have to be so good that you're going to get a five at the end. Mm -hmm. The reality is you can be challenged in that course. And if you get a two, you had a much better experience than if you didn't take the course and you weren't challenged and you didn't try to read more and understand it better and write better and work in groups and be um, really cohesive in your thoughts so that you could put them in an essay and be accountable for that. And so it really didn't make sense to me that we weren't letting a lot of kids in because of a preconceived notion of what their abilities were. So we took that, we broke that process down and we moved it away from teacher recommendations and guidance counselor recommendations. We put in place um, the AccuPlacer, um, it's an assessment. You can find the areas that kids have um, innate abilities. They take an, an assessment. Some of them are off, maybe some of them are, but it gives kids an idea. Hey, I can do this. I can be challenged like this. And, you know, I might be successful at it. And their perceptions had never been that they would even be part of it. So we started doing that. And within a few years, we really raised the agenda there. We did a lot of other things too. Um, we put in some programs to support students in middle school to become more thoughtful about what they were gonna do in their life. Um, we did increase writing across the curriculum and reading across curriculum areas and train teachers on how to do that. So we did things to support students, but the reality is that when you give kids an opportunity even if they aren't going to get the grade you want the first time they take a course like that, they can get better. They have a better perception of themselves as a learner and they're going to do better. Yeah. And we found that in Hillsborough. Indeed. The, and you know, what, what I heard you say too, is when you found uh, in the data, um, something that was alarming, um, you, you, you recognized it, but then you created a system for change, which is not, there's no button right? It takes lining people up, looking at how things work, creating a consistent processes and procedures within the schools to ensure there's equality within each school to create, you know, uh, equity of, you know, more equity in terms of the data and who's, who's in these AP courses, right? It's, it's never as simple as people assume. Well, and that's the part you had to get into the system. So you had to be into it, mm -hmm. but then you had to work on the system. Yeah. 
and um, and and challenges along the way. Believe me, um, teachers felt that they were the only ones that should be able to say who could get in an AP class. And honestly, principals felt they were the only ones who should be able to say who taught those classes. So we also opened up um, the training for possibly teaching AP. We opened it up in all the content areas and had summer training, and then nobody could teach AP if they hadn't had the training for it. And the training for it includes, included that component for, you know, everybody in here is not going to get a five. Everybody in here is going to be challenged and move their skills up and really feel like they can be a top-level learner. And, yeah. um, and all of that was working on the system after we'd been in the system. So what happened, something that happens in education, and I'm sure it happens in other industries as well, is that when somebody is um, successful in one area, sometimes they get recommended or pushed to some level of promotion, right? So sometimes great teachers become principals. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean they'll be a great principal just because they're a great teacher, nor should it, but sometimes that happens. Then great principals sometimes move to more of a system role and they work in central office and so forth. Very similar to your path. So when yep. you kind of grew into it. Now, the one thing, sometimes educators, and we all, most of us have been educators at one point before leading in education, is that we forget before we move that you you move to like this complicated system that includes other things beyond just a focus on teaching and learning. You need to tackle teaching and learning from a variety of angles, even facilities like you mentioned in your, your story earlier. When, when was that realization for you where you, you almost realized, wait a minute, as a leader, I'm not just talking about pedagogy anymore. I'm talking about a lot of other things and I've got to line up all these systems, break down the silos in order for us to be able to focus on teaching and learning. When was that realization for you and how did how, you manage it? Yeah, I think that came, um, I was an administrator in the district working with reading um, uh, 612 and um, and the assistant superintendent for instruction and the superintendent came to me and said, you know, we are under a court order and we have to implement magnet schools. And we have, we've never had a magnet school here. Uh, have you ever worked with magnet schools? And I said, well, I, in New York state, there are ma many magnet schools. Um, and I didn't implement one, but I studied and made the decision in our school as a member of a committee that we shouldn't implement it. But I said, I know about magnet schools, let me find out. So I did a lot of research. I talked to a lot of people and um, I went back and said, yes, we can do this, um, but we've got to make some changes and it's got to be across the entire system. And so when you're putting in magnet schools, you not only have to think about the theme and the academics and the instructional program, but you also have to think about um, the teachers and the certifications and those teachers that would have an affinity to the particular theme that you're putting in, how are they going to get there? 
Um, how are they going to be selected? How are you going to choose your principal, which is a critical piece in making a school successful? Clearly, the principal is um, one of the most important factors in choosing somebody to start something, particularly like that. Absolutely. Then you've got to figure out how do you get the kids to the school? Because if you want kids to come to a school and it's not their neighborhood school and there's no established buses and you've got to set up almost another layer of transportation within your district to bus students from other places in the district to a specific school and back home. And you have to have a, um, a facility that is conducive to the theme. So if it's an arts theme, you might have to have um, dance studios. You might have to have art studios that have more water or they have different light or just all sorts of things. But all of those factors came became very real when we were starting to establish what magnet schools were going to look like in Hillsborough County. And we were in a really good position in the fact that we didn't have any we were going to establish them and we could do it in a very systemic way that looked at all of the different requirements and and set up all of the processes for each of those. So we made decisions about the principalship. If you were going to be a principal there, you had to apply for it and go through a screening. The teachers, the same way. We made, um, we made uh, um, agreements with the union to allow us to shift the way that we put normally put teachers in a school. And, um, and it was because those teachers had an affinity um, and an experience level prior to going to the magnet in that theme. So we did all these things, made all these rules and all, and then we implemented. Mm -hmm. And we were very successful from the very beginning implementing them. And the fact that we started from zero and could put in all of those pieces ahead of time really made them some of the most successful in the country. You know, um, we have a number of members, superintendents, their executive teammates, um, who are grappling with maybe being new to a district, mm -hmm. or, I mean, let's face it, this is post-COVID, right? To, to think that we can operate the same as we did prior to, is almost a round peg into a square hole kind of scenario. So we have a number of leaders that are members of the leadership circle that are grappling with, we need to reorganize. We need to start breaking some things down and building them back up specific to the, the future and the kind of future that we wanna create for kids, which was probably a bit different than it was just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. So as we have those leaders right now kind of working on how do we, you know, not recreate every system, but start to hone them and um, come up with a strategy. What's your advice for them right now at this time, you know, at this point in time in education in the world? Well, I think they have to do um, kind of an assessment of where they are. Mm -hmm. And and let me say, um, you mentioned I, I've been involved with AASA and the work they're doing on learning by 2025, some of the changes that really we need to see happening there. And, um, and it really, I think it opens up people's minds to be, um, where are, you know, really, where am I? Some districts um, have 
very strong um, internships and externship programs and connecting students to the real world, whether it is um, taking coursework while they're still in high school, whether it's um, going out and doing an internship or an externship in their community. Um, all of those things are things that I think need to be on the page and be considered as really part of a necessary component in the future in education. You know, we can't go to um, the schoolhouse door, close it and lock it and expect the kids 12 years later to walk out and be ready for what's occurring in the world. It's changing so fast. Um, things are, are just um, almost the, the jobs that are available, uh, the opportunities that students need in high school to prepare them for jobs and to prepare them to be successful are just so different. And we've got to analyze that. So I think one thing to do is look and see what kinds of programs are you offering students um, that really are relevant and not just steeped in what was done 20 years ago. Um, I think the whole technology thing has got to be examined and looked at carefully. But I think that the ideas on um, that I, for instance, had when I was in Hillsboro on looking at how students access different programs, how they know what they're interested in, how you can get them thinking about that early in middle school, and then how you can connect middle school into high school with the coursework and the themes that you have moving through that. If those things aren't present, superintendents need to be looking at that. And they need to be putting some committees together, right? I'm a great one on having committees together and having people that agree with you and people that don't. And put them all in the same room and say, okay, we want the best for our students. Let's outline what some of the things should be that we include and our strategic plan. And what changes do we need to make? And of course, this all includes, I'm not talking just the superintendent staff, I'm talking about the school board too. Um, we're seeing that there are a number of districts that um, have been kind of, I think, shell-shocked after some of the things that have happened um, as a result of the pandemic and the move out of school and now back in school, kind of the social and emotional supports that kids are seeing, we're seeing that kids need. That kind of connection has to be also on the table to look at. Is that happening in our school district? What do I need to do to help to make sure teachers understand that, understand some of those challenges that kids and families are facing? And I think we've got to take advantage of the connections that a lot of families had to schools during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Don't let them walk away now, right? Yeah, because yeah, they're, they're if, if ever they're engaged, even if they're angry, they're with us. That's right. That's right. Keep them close and find out what worked for them during that and help to support that kind of thing. We're seeing a lot, New York has done a lot of work in other states too, in community schools and connecting things that families and parents need to their schools. As you said earlier, the school isn't just our school and it's not just the principal and the educators in it. It belongs to the community. Indeed. And we've got to think of ways to connect all of that. I, I would say that doing an assessment for a superintendent on, okay, where am I on instruction? Okay, where am I on, um, on human resources and what do I need to do to make sure I can staff my schools? 
Yeah, and it's how, not an easy task these days. Yeah, I mean, those are all big challenges. You see states changing the rules on certifications and those things are all gonna come a reality, but we've gotta start thinking about that. And how can I, in fact, start to grow my own, right? I think um, strong programs for uh, pre-teaching in middle, middle school and high school are very powerful. Whether a person becomes a teacher or not, they have a better affinity for what it's like to be a teacher. And that's a very good thing. And I think we have to pull our teachers in. I think teachers are our greatest resource. We really have to support teachers and the approach that they think we need to move forward on. But all of this has to be examined in the context of how you've got your district organized now. Um, and where should there be changes? And those things, and when you have really, really um, thoughtful discussions, I think you'll find that some of the changes are gonna be right in front of your face. You, you mentioned silos earlier, right? And, mm -hmm. and often that's talked about in education. How do you move from, you know, away from this siloed environment? The, the dilemma is that sometimes there are titles, there are job responsibilities that create these lanes. And then in those lanes, there is some comfort. So people become comfortable with, that's my role, that's my responsibility. Well, our, our kids probably don't des deserve for us to be comfortable. It's okay for us to be uncomfortable as long as we're safe. So if we're trying to break away from these silos and almost promote discomfort and safety, what are your recommendations for working with the staff and the adults so that they start to move away from maybe what they've always known? How would you, how would you do that? Well, I, first of all, um, I think you have to be an evolutionary, not a revolutionary. Revolutionaries don't make it much past the revolution. Um, you really have to be um, thoughtful about how you're going to do it and think about it. Change management is not an easy thing, but it is something that if you are thoughtful about how to make change, then you are much more successful when you're trying to do it. And I would say the way to get those silos um, to start to disappear is to have more and more opportunities where there's teaming between different divisions within a district or where problems come that exist at schools in the district and they come to a central table, maybe the superintendent's table, maybe you know a layer down in administration, but they come and they say, okay, this is what we've got. We got a problem here. How are we gonna solve this problem? And everybody in the room, for instance, knows that it may be a facilities problem or it may be a um, uh, transportation issue. So you have to verbalize where you think it is and put mm -hmm. those things on the table and address them as they come up. Can't be worried about people's titles. In fact, the titles are, I think, in many cases, restrictive of people thinking open um, in a more open approach to how can I solve the problems that we've got in the district? Because each person really needs to take it on. They own them, just like they own every kid. Yeah, for sure. You know, mo most, of, most of our processes, Mary Ellen, with our, within our community of leaders are roundtable processes. This is actually probably the one thing we do to support our members that is us providing this content for them. But 
if I ask this of, of all of our leader chat guests, if we were sitting around a round table and we had, um, you know, you wanted to leave the people at that table, superintendents, assistant superintendents, deputies, right, directors, you wanted to leave them some very pragmatic, focused advice, what would you want to leave them with? What is your kind of uh, final brass tacks? You should consider this. What would you say? I think you have to have a open meeting with your staff. Lay this out on the table. Get ideas from them on how to break down silos. You will instantly know who's open to doing it. So work with that first group of people that were open and start to move the others. But I think the bottom line is, particularly superintendents are going in, there's a lot of movement in uh, administrative staffs around the country right now. You've got to look for the people that understand that they don't, they don't own just one little piece of this, they own it all, just like you own it all. Yeah. And that in, and how that comes out in conversations and in interviews and in key questions. And uh, I'm always, an, uh, I, I'm really a strong believer that how people in the, have acted or behaved or done things in the past will indicate how they're going to do them again. Right. Yeah. Or well just said. years of habit. And if you've got somebody whose habits more aligned to, I'm going to solve problems. I like problem solvers. And I like people that don't put a lot of controls on what they're going to do or not going to do. And I'm not going to do that. It doesn't fall in my area. Or I might bother somebody else if I do something, so I better not do it. I think you've got to have people that really have the nerve to go out and say, we're all in this together, guys, let's work. And they're honest with each other, right? Because it's not just the superintendent. You've got to rely on your staff. Yeah, no, no great leaders do anything alone. No. And, you know, what I hear you saying, which I agree with is the more all hands on deck strategies and discussions we have, the better. Right? Especially when things are tough, right? When things get tight, tough and we've been through some tough times in various places across the country and many places across the country over the last two years. Um, the people that have stepped up and been the problem solvers, um, those are the ones that you want to have on your team. So uh, while there are incredible leadership uh, texts and there's research and white paper that are out there at, uh, at our fingertips, of course, I, I really believe in leaders learning from other leaders, tapping the collective wisdom uh, of other people who have done or are doing the work. And so I consider um, myself really fortunate to um, have had a chance to engage you. But more importantly, I'm so thrilled that our members get to learn from your wisdom and experience in the past as well as in the present as you coach others. So Thanks so much for this time. Um, I've, I've really loved it. And I, and I know I'm not the only one. So thank you so much, Mary Ellen. It was great. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. And, and thank you to everybody out there that's working now to make it work for kids. Indeed, indeed. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, this, this content we bring because number one, it's important, but number two, we know it's a need. And so that is our job, is to mine the needs of leaders and to find ways to provide valuable content. And Mary Ellen's the perfect example 
of doing just that. So like she said, thank you for your noble work of leading and supporting students in your communities. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, be well.